you uh, you seem to be in charge uh, of taking charge of your your whole career, kind of. Uh, you've got a good business head. Uh, you learned, I understand, from father. But is there is there anyone you could talk to about making career decisions? Is there anybody that you? Could um, in terms of career decisions, for the past four years, really my my career decisions I've made pretty much all myself. Um, in terms of creative decisions, I've uh, the only person I've ever talked to was my publisher, funnily enough. Dick Lee. Dick Lee, yeah. Um, because he's the only he's the only person that I've met who whose ear is as sharp as mine in terms of um, when I'm not doing. Uh, when when what my, my performance isn't kind of everything I should give. It's like it, basically what he's been is the type. It's like if I if I listen to something that I've recorded, say a month or two months ago, and uh, I'm kind of waiting for someone to tell me uh, it's not quite what it should be. It's not enough, you know. Then it's always him. And then when he says it, I know that I'm because sometimes I mean sometimes especially as your track record builds up and you have. Say, I mean, in England, especially the pressure. If you've had four or five number ones or whatever, and, and with every one, it's uh, it's kind of harder to. Actually, I'm going to wait until these two have cleared off from it. <laughs> We're walking back some more. I have to get back home. I'm very much. I don't creatively. I cannot work here in any in any way. I, I there's one. There's too many distractions, and two. Um, I have a very strong sense of home. You know, and I'm not. If I'm not home in terms of um, my surroundings, then I, I'm not myself, and if I'm not myself, I can't really work clearly. I find, as a producer, I'm totally, um, I'm you know at sea here. Whereas when I get back to, to London or Paris or somewhere, like that, I'm just really, I'm very focused. The home, home really is home. I could never understand in the, those years when uh, <coughs> Elton and uh, Rod Stewart and George Harrison, all those people moved here, how they could really stay away from home for a long time. Mm, it's I think, terrific here and everything, but... Uh, I think it definitely damages people creatively because I think your, your... you know, your creativity has to come from... it really has to come from, your, from really the core of you and I think when you're in a foreign situation, um, even though it might not feel foreign, I think if you come... if I was to live here now, if I were to move here next year, um, I would start you have so many new influences that are gradually, even though they've always been there when you visited, they're gradually seeping into you, and other and the people around you are influencing you. You start to change, and and if your success is being based on the character you were before, I think the chances, uh, I mean, the, the you know, the, I just think that mucking about with it is is kind of dodgy. I don't know. I mean, I might end up living here in a couple of years' time. I hope not, but I might do. Uh, we're talking about. Does anybody have input to you? I mean, uh, they can say, "Hey, George, you shouldn't be doing this, or shouldn't be doing that now." Is there, uh... Well, people put their, put in their their um, <clears throat> people put in their their ideas, but most people really have have realised that I don't really, I don't really have. There's very little that influences me. You know, I do think very much up. I, I think very much ahead in terms of everything, in terms of writing, in terms of uh, what I'm going to be doing in six months' time or twelve months' time creatively. So. Really, people leave me alone, you know. It's you don't feel a need for... Uh, no, I'm not a very good collaborator yeah. at all. You know, I'm, I tend to be kind of a purist in the way I do things, and it, it's much easier to, to be that way when you're on your own. When you guys started, uh, when, when you finally put it together, what, was what came out the other end, the sexy, teen-oriented image, was that pretty well contrived, or did it just happen? Um, 
it was it was quite odd really it was it was not so much contrived i, I mean i find it hard to 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 accept the word contrived because because contrived to me um suggests some element of uh deception and there was never any deception i mean we probably the first image we had was more contrived because the first image although it wasn't an image that hit america because america didn't really take any notice of us until make it big yeah make it big but um the first image was very much a one of uh two it was like kind of very cocksure and and it was two two kind of street kids which we weren't i mean we were street kids in the sense that we both uh like we would be out of work and and we went we came from working class backgrounds initially but we both moved into kind of middle class areas and um even though we didn't have any money in our pockets our parents did you know and we always had a security blanket as it were in that sense so we were that was kind of contrived because it was kind of streetish but at the same time the lyrics were always very tongue in cheek so we didn't feel that we were deceiving because we were parodying all the things that the songs were about the first three songs were about in order um yeah wham rap was uh was um an un the, the song was about unemployment um young guns the song was about the perils of marriage at an early age and um bad boys was about teenage rebellion and you know child versus parent and they were all very tongue in cheek because they were all things that weren't um particularly uh we weren't taking any of those subject subjects particularly seriously because they didn't really affect us you know we weren't neither of us were really rebellious we were both doing things that our parents didn't want us to do and following careers that our parents didn't want us to to follow but other than that we weren't rebels um neither of us had any plans of getting married at that age and uh even though we were unemployed a lot of the time it was no great hardship you know so i mean it was all done very 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 much that was contrived but it was contrived in a very tongue in cheek way the whole bit about the whole second image the first the first american image as you could say with the, you know both with the highlights and the the grinning you know grinning guys in front of the camera it wasn't contrived so much because we were both extremely up that year it was our first it was our first taste of real success and uh i think whatever we re radiated was fairly genuine confidence but obviously it was very much marketed I, that wasn't really me as a person you know that's and it wasn't really andrew either the pair of us were, were a lot more um our actual goals we knew what we were doing but our goals were much more um let's say adult than that you know when i talked to mick jagger and asked cuz they they also developed an image that really wasn't them and they were all middle class uh, mm -hmm. people and they were bad guys <clears throat> but uh they worked on that image and in their case he said the image took over after a while and that caused keith richards problems and brian jones mm -hmm. killing himself uh did you manage to have you have you managed to keep your music away from that kind of image um i think at one point the image was vital to um taking the success of the records their absolute optimum i mean it was like people for some reason i i never really understood it i think in england perhaps it was this, the fact that we'd gone from being kind of street looking to very kind of uh, pop stars looking almost like we suddenly struck it lucky in that and people were fascinated with that obviously people everywhere were fascinated between the relationship between the two of us but um I think it was it was vital to have that real I mean with records like Go Go and Freedom um we took really that whole 60s image and put it to 
to, to records in the 80s, which did two things. One, it brought out... Um, it brought people into the record shops and made them buy that confidence for some reason. They bought that. And secondly, it kind of turned just about any, anybody who couldn't stomach that violently against us because it was... It, it's, I think the, 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 the real point of Wham! and without it being a spoken thing between Andrew and I, it was always recognised, was that we did not accept the cynicism that was now taken for granted as being... Um, you were supposed to adopt it if you had an intelligent attitude to music. And as far as I was concerned, I was far more musical than most of the people that I was reading about as a child. I mean, when I say as a child, when I was like 15, 16, I was picking up New Musical Express and and seeing that even even since I'd been reading it, and I'd been reading it since I was about 11, um, it was just a ridiculous cynicism which was starting to actually seep into um, kids' attitudes. It wasn't just the journalists that were thinking that way anymore, it was the kids as well. And the pair of us just weren't, didn't accept that. You know, we didn't accept that pop records, although, I mean, um, there is a place for, there's a place for, uh, for, protest in music and there's a place for cynicism there's a place for every aspect of you know of society because society is now very cynical that doesn't mean that there's no place for pure entertainment and that doesn't mean to that doesn't mean that pure entertainment cannot be done in a very intelligent manner i think that um i consider myself to be an intelligent person i consider myself to be uh, a very musical person and I think the two combined were the main reason for the success of the records. I don't think that I have anything. I don't think I have anything to be ashamed of in the in the the trivia of a record like Go Go. I've always been very proud of the fact that I could take um, a piece of music, totally divorce it from my personality, and and craft it. You know, it was really crafted a very crafted record. I don't feel a real ability to do that anymore. Um, I feel that I am too aware. In a way, I suppose, really, Wham was successful and, and we did what we wanted, we achieved what we wanted to achieve, but I suppose cynicism eventually got the better of me because, uh, not because I'm any more cynical than I am, I suppose, but simply because I couldn't face um, having to try and drum it into people any longer. You know, it was having too much, people were taking the image too seriously and they were seeing me as that person. And... I could only fight it for so long, I suppose. I mean, we were making records. I mean, everything she wants came out, and everything she wants was accepted as as uh, a break from the way that I normally wrote. And my my reaction to that was to release to the first thing after that to be um, I'm your man because I'm your man totally steered clear of anything, any kind of uh, message again. It was very much a pop record again. And it was my way of saying, listen, you know, I've done that, or I've done Careless Whisper, but not because I've suddenly grown up, simply because I chose to do that, and now I choose to do this again. I choose to just make up a trivial pop record again. I was very kind of stubborn about it. And um, in a way, I think eventually I thought, well, you know, you're now actually, st you're making pop records three, four years on for the sake of proving that people weren't right. You know that people weren't that you're for the sake you're making them now for the sake of of saying uh, pop records are just as good as anything else I can write and really that's there's no point I mean, what's the point I I have not I don't really really feel the need to prove that to people anymore I'm sure I will write pop records but the records that I'm writing now 
um, are tend to be much more a reflection of my real character as opposed to just craft. You think you uh, turn the tide of cynicism at all? Uh... In the sad thing about the fact that America didn't, although I don't think America would ever really have, have warmed to Wham the way that, that um, the rest of the world has, because America has its such strong. Um, it's so America is so strong, you know. It's just it's Americana itself is so strong. People's attitudes are so strong. Where so it was. Whereas originally I thought maybe if we'd had that extra eighteen months that we had around the rest of the world, we might have achieved a lot more here. I think all that would have happened was we would have been more successful. We wouldn't necessarily have changed people's attitudes. In in England, it was it, the actual the last year of our career in England was so satisfying because basically what happened was it actually turned around. We we became partially because of our involvement our not involvement part but partially because of our our presence in national media day after day after day for about two years. I think. Um, we became kind of like a tiny little part of the, the structure of British society, you know, I mean, very minuscule part, but nevertheless it was something that didn't seem to have been done um, since the 60s, you know, and that was one of the things that I was, I was working towards. And the other thing was that really, um, Wham! are now very acceptable. Even the, the back catalogue of Wham! is very acceptable in England among my own age group. The people, people read enough interviews and w were like kind of warmed enough to us because of records like Everything She Wants and I'm Your Man, different corner things like that. Eventually, we did actually turn the tide in 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 terms of people recognise the difference between a pop record and a good pop record, a real good pop record, and they and they started. I really, I I personally um, got a lot of pleasure out of the fact that people recognised me as a writer, even in pop terms, you know, which was we. I mean, th there were something like um, a million applications for the final show at Wembley, which was which is a seventy-two thousand seater. We were the first pop band to to really have played there. I mean, Elton was Elton was the last real big gig before that, um, who headlined. Uh, and Elton, although he's a pop artist, is is very much a crossover I and mean, is much more adult. And our audience that day went from everything through the kids. Uh, of like 13 up to people like 40, 50 years old and it was like and the main and the majority I would have said of the the audience was probably around 18 or 19 which which was something that I wouldn't have thought we were going to achieve say 18 months ago. Well it's startling, you know you're often compared to Elton uh, in terms of songwriting mm -hmm. that it took you so short a time to achieve that spot in, in, in UK for sure. Mm -hmm. How, how did it happen so fast? Well, did you think, Elton, when you were saying that some of the people you thought were not so musical, who did you think was terrific when you guys were just getting started? Um, well, I'd always, I mean, as a, as children, Andrew and I had, um, that was our first talking point. When we met, our first talking point uh, in the classroom, we were about 12 years old, was the fact we both just bought Goodbye at Brit Road. And um, I was a huge Elton fan. I was a huge Elton fan from the age of about nine. Um, and really that, I mean, I think, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that his influence that hasn't shown more in my own writing because I, you know, I mean, I recognise my own influences and I think um, it's surprising that it hasn't, but it's just he, his melodies were always so strong, you know. And uh, when I was, I suppose, by the time we were starting the group, I was probably, 
you see, I, I mean, I've, I have, I think, I've a very natural leaning towards um, a lot of uh, R and B music, and that's either 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 something that you appreciate or you don't. I think you either have that in you or you don't. And even though I had it in me as a child, um, I wasn't exposed to much black music simply because um, I listened to white radio. Uh, I came from a very <clears throat> white suburban area, and until the kind of Saturday Night Fever boom, there wasn't very much black music on radio. And so apart from, as a very small child, I had three records that I was allowed to, to play um, on this. I had literally one of those wind-up things out in the garage, and my parents had thrown out three records, which were Delilah by Tom Jones, which is a strange one to start with, and um, Stop in the Name of Love and uh, Baby Love. So I had those, the, my first ever, my first ever listening was to uh, like kind of, to Motown records, to Motown records which, is, which is great. But, um, but then after that, all I heard really was basically white pop music for the first half of my, my adolescence. And then after that, from about 14, um, I concentrated so heavily on absorbing all that black music, American black music was coming over, that I didn't really, listen that much to white artists anymore, apart from the fact that the second half of the 70s was a very dead period for white artists, you know. You really wanted to be a star, didn't you? I wanted it, I mean, I, I, I wanted it with a passion, but it was a kind of, I mean, it sounds very easy to say in hindsight, but there, there I've, I've always had a, a very strange sense of my own future, and as a child, even though I had no idea that I could write or sing, I was convinced that I was going to be... Um, a pop star. I had no, I had no real inclination to sh to shout about it because I just felt it was going to happen. And the, you know, there are those strange moments when you, that you remember as a child. You can remember a, a certain thought. And I remember at various occasions um, between the ages of about seven and and fifteen. I remember if I got into any kind of difficulty, whether it be at school, with friends, or if I ever, because I kind of felt, sometimes I kind of felt like an outsider, even though I wasn't, I was very social. <clears throat> I had this kind of thought in the back of my head that it wouldn't really matter, because one day I was going to be separated. I was going, I mean, I had this thing, I mean, now that I'm here, I don't feel special for being here, but I had this feeling that I was going to do something special, you know, and there was going to be something apart, which I've, I've, and I've spoken to other people that have said the same thing. And of course it's easy enough to say in hindsight, there's probably loads of kids that think they're going to be very special or do something very out of the ordinary and then they don't, but that's just the way I remember it. Um, and I don't understand why I felt that way, because I had no idea what I could do. Even, I mean, I even... Um, when I was 13, 14, I hadn't really thought about whether I was going to sing. I originally played the drums, I played the violin before that because my parents wanted me to. Uh, and it wasn't until... I don't think, I don't think it was until um, we made the album Make It Big that I actually accepted that I was a singer. That I could actually make a... I was going to be a singer that was more than like, just average, that could actually get some respect from people. And that seems to really strange to me, you know, that I had a, a real belief in myself as a child, but I didn't know what as. How did you deal? You had so little experience in, in dealing with success. How, how was it to deal with this explosion that happened? Just make it big album. But um, how much did it change you? It must have changed. I mean, it obviously changed my confidence in some. I mean, I've I've always seen my my career and my personality as being quite separate things, and I think really that my confidence as an artist, as a writer and a singer, grows all the time. 
my confidence as a person has pretty much stayed on the same level. I'm very aware of um, of the fact that 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 stars left, right, and centre. I mean, especially the stars that I've met. You, if you see, if you, you can, if you can see people's success reflected, or you see your own success reflected in uh, other people's success, and meet celebrities all the time, then you'd be you'd be stupid not to notice the weaknesses they have, and uh, not to realise that they're things that you're just as vulnerable to. I mean, I think I'm very I'm very guarded uh, against. I mean, like this, for instance. I mean, being in Beverly Hills. Um, and you know, having the Mercedes and all the cliches—they're the kind of cliches that um, I'm very aware of all the time, and I take very much with a sense of humour. You know, I mean, I'm very—I'm not an extravagant person. I'm not—I don't <coughs> like to buy things or have things. I don't <coughs> really take much pleasure in uh, in stardom, as it were. I take a lot of pleasure in the freedom it gives me creatively, and as a person to be able to to, to be any place I want. Where, when I want, I take a lot of pleasure in that. Um, other than that, I'm, I don't really wallow in uh, in people's perception of me because I find people's perception of me very false. You know, so in that case, that sense, I've, I think I've managed to keep hold of my own personality. Apart yeah. from anything, I don't surround myself with new people. I'm very much um, around the people that I've known all my life. Uh, at a certain point, it gets you, you have to avoid the difficulty of being George Michael. Like the difficult, how hard is it to be Frank Sinatra? You yeah. Know, you stand back, my God, all those years, all those people. <clears throat> you had a real grown-up problem you had to deal with with uh, Andrew, and uh, that had to be very worrisome while it was going on. Um, what the split? Yeah, you know, that you knew you had to come deal with it at some point. There. Um, not really, no. I mean, <clears throat> people always find it very hard to accept how easy my relationship with Andrew's always been. Yeah. Um, I think it's basically for two reasons. One is that. Andrew's an, a, a supremely confident person. He always has been, and he had no, he had no. Although there was a little tension in the very first year of our success, from the moment um, Andrew really saw me take hold of my own creativity and dis and and grasp what I was going to be doing, because you know, is however confident someone is on the inside, it often takes some kind of catalyst to really bring it out. And I only really grasped what I could do with my career after about a year um, of success. And the minute Andrew saw that kind of uh, energy, he saw me kind of go into overdrive, he just stood back and, sa and said, look, you know, fine, this is what's going to happen. There's no way that um, I am going to be uh, a positive input in George's... Um, creative output as it were so so I'm going to stand back he basically is a, he's very much um, he's he's very much a fan in that sense you know he doesn't like he, he just he sees what I, what I do creatively as uh, as someone else would he doesn't take in he doesn't take what could have happened into account in terms of whether we could have been a collaboration because he saw he's always been very uh, pragmatic about it and, it's, and said look anything I'm going to write he's going to write something better, you know, so what's the point? I mean, it's like, a lot of people would have taken that in a very bad way, but Andrew just, um, as a person in general, is very confident. He doesn't need to feel that he is uh, in competition with me or anyone else, for that matter. He understood his purpose in terms of image. He was always the first person to say, look, you know, I'm half the image. This, this group is working as 
a musical entity and as a as just an image in itself. There's no way that um, I, I mean, there's no I don't believe that I would not have achieved what I am aiming to achieve because I still <coughs> haven't got half halfway as far as I'm concerned. But I don't believe that I would never have achieved what I'm what I'm going for now. But I think it would take me longer without a foil. And I was no more using Andrew than he was using me. The pair of us went in, into it together, really not knowing this was going to happen, really not knowing um, how my career was going to, to move. And uh, having realised the situation, what well, I mean, I was not going to drop Andrew. I had no need to drop Andrew. Andrew um, served a purpose for me, I served a purpose for him, and we were still very good friends. So while, while that relationship lasted, um, there was no need, no need to, to start really thinking about whether we should be splitting up. Although we both talked often and knew that at, one, at some point um, we would not, at some point the image would not be worth maintaining. And that at that point came last year simply because I was starting to find the restrictions of of being wham in a creative sense, because we, we could have just kind of kept, kept on being wham and me gradually making George Michael records, but that would have been a real sham, you know. Um, as long as we could make records like uh, <clears throat> I'm a Man or Edge of Heaven and still do it with conviction and make them sound really, give them as much energy as wham was, was known for, then it was a good thing. But when that started to become um, a chore, you know, um, then, then it really didn't. There didn't seem to be any point in it. There didn't seem to be any point in me uh, or uh, us promoting music that we were no longer going to believe in. And I do believe in the records that we released up until the moment that we finished. But we both sensed that it was going to. It was going. It was everyone with the vultures were coming in. It was like time for when or where I'm going to have. I mean, this is at home. This is where we. I mean, in England, which is where we live. So obviously, it was important to us. It was going to be when or where I'm going to have a number two single, not a number one single. Who's coming up now? All this, and it was, it was starting to be. Well, we are fighting to maintain excellence, which you have to do. But there's no creative pleasure out of having to write number one records, you know, and having to be on top all the time. It was just a pressure that was, uh, was no fun anymore. And we we'd um, we were both very financially secure by then and Andrew wanted to do his racing. There were all kinds of outside uh, influences, but basically we both knew it was coming, we just didn't know when it was coming, and, and when it did, Andrew raised no objection, you know? Well, the comparison, one thinks of the Simon and Garfunkel, which was <coughs> rather one-sided in the creative area, but yours appeared to have been far easier and far more amicable than, than their oh, yeah. breakup. I mean, it was, the, the, I think, apart from anything else, um, I don't know about Simon and Garfunkel's how how long standing their relationship was before. They had been a lot more years than you had been, and Art did sing. Oh, I understand that. Yeah, I know. I know yeah. the the uh, history of the group. Yeah. I meant before the the group was actually successful. Uh, they struggled a bit. They were Tom and Jerry, and then they mm. struggled. And, and it's just that Andrew and I knew each other so intimately for so long yes. that. Um, Really, the way we talked about our own relationship was constant. It was throughout the thing. So it was, there were never any surprises, you know. And whenever there was any tension, I'm the type of person that, that kind of tends to drag honesty out of people, you know, even if they don't want to give it. So it would be like, if there was any tension, we'd end up, um, after six or eight months, we'd end up having a round and getting it all clear, and then it would be fine again. When you, uh, when the decision was made that you <coughs> wanted to go on your own, what 
by the time this book gets to uh, press, it will have done. But what do you want to be? What uh, What do you want, George? Mike? What kind of artist? How do you want to be regarded? Um, I think I have a very privileged position in that I am 23 years old and have had five years in the business, five years which have taught me an awful lot, and I've absorbed an awful lot. So on the business side of things, I, I'm in the in I'm in the lucky position that. I can make clear decisions at 23. The other real, but the main privilege of it is that everyone is right now expecting me to move into the kind of artists that they've been comparing me to for the last couple of years, i.e. another Elton or um, maybe something more MOR or whatever. But I do have the advantage of, of youth, you know, and I have a very, very... I've been making... I've started to make music the last six months, which... I feel is every bit as convincing as the music I've made before, and is a, and it is on. Basically, we I've been bought by either end of the spectrum. Uh, up until now, I've been bought for the, my re records have been accepted by a lot of kids and a lot of much older people who 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 um, like the fact that the style was kind of old-fashioned and very structured and. That area in the middle, my own age group, have only just started to accept me. But the music I'm <clears throat> I'm making right now is, I think, probably I'm going to make two types of music. One is the type that people are expecting me to make because it's really what I'm best at, and well, I would imagine whatever happens from now on, I'll probably be remembered the most for is my is my songs in terms of um, structured ballads and stuff like that with strong melodies, but also. Um, there's a much stronger there's a there's a kind of sexuality that I haven't really um, made the most of with the first part of my career and which I didn't really feel I, I had any real place with the pop music I was making um, and now I just want to take advantage of the uh, well basically I want I want to use my love of black music and kind of make what I what I feel to be uh, good modern R&B records and and if it works and there's going to be a very drastic sh shift in image as well if it works which I think it will um, I think I'll, I should it'll probably be quite uh, it'll be the first time it's happened because basically I should be able to um, convince two very different markets to like the same artist as long as the motivation and this is only gratuitous advice because I've seen it happen with a songwriter Jimmy Webb seen it happen with a group, the association, that had a groove. The outside talk bothered them so much that they changed in ways that really didn't come from the inside. Mm. They changed in reaction to that. Mm. Well, obviously, you can't totally dismiss that, but the danger that you face is an overreaction oh, yeah, absolutely. to that. But you see, the thing is that I've always reacted. I don't think I'm likely to do that now simply because I've always reacted very much in terms of I'm going to do what I love doing, you know, Fuck you lot if you don't like, uh, if you're not going to um, accept the fact that a great pop record is a great pop record, you know, if you can't understand pop anymore, then I don't care, that's what I'm making and that's it still sells and people still love it and I still love it. And um, I don't, I'm not going to shift because uh, I think I should, I'm shifting because I think whereas as an 18, 19 year old my, my character um, and my excitement in coming into this business made it much easier for me to make pop records. Um, 
I feel much more the need right now. It's something, it is very much from inside to make the kinds of records that I listen to all the time now. Um, as well as, you see, I don't, I don't have to listen to ballads all the time to write the kind of ballads I write because I have a very strong feeling about that type of music and I have a very strong need to express myself emotionally um, in music. Also, but whereas I didn't really feel, I don't know, maybe, um, maybe I'm, I suppose obviously as a, as a 22 year old, 23 year old, you're more, obviously I'm more experienced sexually than I was as an 18 year old, so maybe it's time for that to start reflecting in the music. But what, for whatever the reasons, um, the music that I'm making now, although it's a very different, it's very much more, it's very different to the music I was making three years ago, it now feels more natural to me. And I've been restricted from making that type of music simply by the nature of of the group. So, in other words, um, I felt that apart from the actual tension of having to make records uh, in the style that Wham was accepted, I felt that it was going to start to sound fake. It was it was going to start to to um, the the less natural it became to me. Obviously, the less exciting the records were going to be. And as everything that I've ever written. Um, which I've, I've felt everything I've ever written has come to me naturally. I've never had to force every, anything, and that's why it's been successful. I would imagine that me doing something in a different area, which is now natural to me, should be every bit as successful, because it'll be just as musical. There's another uh, weight that you carry, in addition to uh, the musical. It's, it's the imagery of the looks and the sexiness. Uh, is, <clears throat> is, that a, is that a problem? I don't find that a problem at all. I think it's an advantage. I think I just want to shift that. I think the sexuality has always been very kind of um, the sexuality that that, that that people associated with Wham has always been very kind of uh, sterile, you know, and it's and it's um, it's because it's very you know we did that was the thing about the sixties. I mean, who would say that the Beatles had an overtly sexual image? But kids that went absolutely wild because most of the kids that went wild were were virgins. You know, this is the point, and. That's something which I never really associated until a while ago with um, Wham's image. And although Wham's image wasn't me, um, Wham's image, the, the Make It Big image, was really something which I felt would w fitted the music because the music was 60s um, in its approach, even if it didn't all sound 60s. Uh, I now realise that uh, that was one of people's main objections. And I just want to shift that sexuality into reality. You know? I mean, my sexuality is that of a 23-year-old you know, in the 1980s, and uh, if I can reflect that as successfully as I reflected um, the other areas of, of my image, um, I think it should work really well. Uh, you, uh, you have all the, the, the perks of being a star, uh, all the things that happened in the invitations and the People magazine and National Enquirer. Uh, will that continue? Will you continue to be out and around? and? Uh, um, I, 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 it's very strange. I have a, um, it's, it's a, it's a kind of dichotomy that I think a lot of stars have in common. It's, it's an obsession with success and recognition of success and at the same time a real, um, need for privacy. And I think I toe the line pretty well because I, I, I really don't go out of my way <clears throat> to be at events, society dues. I mean, I've, I'm really not very much um, a showbiz type person, so I don't feel that I... I feel that when I am chased...
by um, by paparazzi and people like that, especially in England, I feel that I really do have a right to complain <clears throat> because um, you know I don't really ask for it. the the only, The only thing is that it that America is still to me to to a degree a retreat because I'm far less visible here. And even if I was, I, I mean, the fact is that, that America doesn't have anything like the fascination with me that my home country has, simply probably because, one, my career is not as advanced, and two, I'm English, you know. Um, I find the English pressure very, very hard, which is why I spend so much time here. Um, and there is a certain, I have a certain fear that I will lose that, um, that privacy over here, too. But uh, it's very hard to stop yourself from trying to move on to the next level, you know, because when you are, when you have that kind of, uh, it is like an obsession with success, the things that you want to do will automatically not just make you more successful in terms of people buying your records or if I decide to do a film. There are the challenges that you want to, um, to give yourself are automatically going to bring you more of what you don't want, which is that that public and and, and uh, media fascination, you know. It's obviously two extremes. Uh, you have a Bruce Springsteen or a Dylan who really go into a bunker, and uh, Rod Stewart, for instance, who for a period here when he was married was under every <coughs> supermarket opening or something. Yeah. Like that. I, I think you probably have a better chance of your privacy here, even if your recognition factor is up, because this community is accustomed to it. Yeah. Next door can be. Robert Redford, or yeah. Sliced Alone lives up the street. It depends, doesn't it? On it depends on what type of star you become. Um, I mean, I I do have a feeling that uh, simply because of my age, I do feel that my my career hasn't, and not just because of my age, but also because I'm a songwriter as opposed to my. In essence, my career is based around my songwriting. I mean, I mean, I think I'm a good singer, and I think I will be a lot better singer one day than I am now. <coughs> That living uh, here in Los Angeles, yeah. <laughs> that you can be anonymous, <laughs> no such luck. You feel a lot of pressure with this this first project that you're going to do by yourself. I mean, there seem to be so many creative thoughts swirling around. Um, not really pressure because I've I've started. I mean, I was a little scared before I went into the studio um, to work on anything because I've had I've had songs swimming around in my head for about two years that. I knew I had to wait until the actual break came, um, and I was kind of nervous to put them down to tape in case they actually, because you see, I, because I do write in my head, so I, and I don't demo anymore because I hate the idea of what I tend to do is I demo. I used to do I demo, and then I'd be I get so carried away with the demo because be really excited that I'd get a great performance, vocal performance, and great feel on everything. <clears throat> but it would have been done so quickly that obviously it couldn't be a master, and then you'd have to go in and recreate that. So I'd rather have the actual excitement come out of the mastering, you know. When when I when I, in other words, the first should be the first, and the first and the last. So um, I don't demo, <clears throat> and that means that uh, I just keep the songs and the arrangements in my head. And I've got like about six now, and I've only put two of them down. And uh, I'm really excited. Them. Yeah, I mean it's <clears throat> uh, it's it's weird. It's been a long time now. Um, the one. The one that I actually, the first one I put down was two and a half years old. And it is true, I do manage to keep the entire arrangements and the lyric and melody and everything in my head. And it's very, very silly in one sense, because I mean, I might go and bang my head tomorrow or something. And I, 
Where's wood? There's no wood to touch. Yeah, yeah. Touch wood. I don't, but I mean, I mean, I might go and have a nasty fall or something and lose, you know, an album's worth of material. But I have this thing that if it's in my head, it's um, and it's still there. It's because it's meant to be there, you know. I have kind. Of, it's like a superstition. But um, <clears throat> yeah, I've just started uh, actually putting down these tracks, and they are. Um, I'm I'm very excited. There's no way it's not going to be uh, fine, you know. You've had uh, a couple of real major appearances uh, in that we've seen, uh, in addition to Wembley. How did the Motown show come about for you? How did you get involved in that? Um, how did I get involved? Oh, I was I was contacted in at the end of '84, I guess. Was it '84? I was contacted at the end of '84 by the Motown office, and they said, basically, uh, would George like to come? sing Careless Whisper with Smokey Robinson. Of course, obviously, I was very thrilled, you know, of course I was going to do it. And then they said, um, and also, would George like to name another artist, any artist on Motown that he'd like to perform with? So I thought, you know, this is like, I, I was just kind of shocked, you know, I just didn't understand. And then they also told me there are only two or three artists, white artists on the show. And I presume that the, the initial, um, the, uh, the invitation must have been based on the fact that that people recognise the Motown influence in something like Go Go, and um, and I, presumably there were, because Careless was just been a big hit on the on the black chart and everything, and it was um, and I, I thought well let's I'll go for the big one I don't suppose I'll be able to but I said I said um, could I perform with Stevie Wonder, and they said yes and they said w have you any choices of songs and I just couldn't <laughs> believe I was getting all these opportunities so I I chose the song and everything, and it was. Probably as a singer, I, I guess that and, and the um, and the the studio, uh, it, the studio recording with Aretha Franklin are obviously the highlights of my career as a singer. But um, I didn't know exactly. I, I, I even when I got there, I wasn't quite sure what I was doing there. You know, although I was very pleased with my own performance on the day, I think I kind of um, I was very scared. But I think my I, I kind of rose to the occasion as opposed to being intimidated by it. Um, and I just hope that I get a chance to do that kind of thing again. I think I probably will. Um, it's a, it's just a great compliment, you know, to be accepted um, as a singer by, by a community of singers that are the best in the world, you know. What was the China experience like? Uh, it was pretty, pretty horrendous actually. It was, it was pretty much. Um, it was historic, I suppose, and. It was a great, a great opportunity to do something that, that I mean, there are very few things that you can do as a pop pop band that haven't been done before now. You know, what can you do other than sell more records than anyone else or whatever? You know, it's all kind of statistic and and it's very uh, most people are very disillusioned. But the idea of playing to those people, being the first people to play real kind of Western pop music to those people, was a, it was a great privilege. It was just that. It was a pretty horrific couple of weeks because the place is so um, oppressive, you know, the actual atmosphere. Also, there was a very great sense of uh, um, deception, I felt, because we arrived believing that they were genuinely prepared to accept a little Western influence um, as part of their uh, their new... Um, policy, you know, but basically what it was, I think, was a um, a gesture of it was a kind of sh an empty gesture <clears throat> of saying, look, here we are, we're going to accept 
you and we have all this industry that we want you to accept. When actually what happened was that we played, <clears throat> we played two, two concerts, that's all we did. One in, in Beijing, which is, or Peking, uh, which is obviously the most Chinese part of China you could Where eat. Where did you play it? In the square? Um, no, we played at, um, what was it called? I'm not sure, but it was outdoor. an auditorium. It was an indoor auditorium about 14,000 people. Yeah. And um, we played there, and we played in Canton, which is about 100 miles from the Hong Kong border, therefore very much more westernised. But Beijing was the, real, was the real test. And what happened, basically, was that, that we opened with um, a black DJ who had done... Who, who was, we'd all, we always used to work with DJs on tour as opposed to a support act, which we'd always found worked really well. And this guy did just about everything that a DJ could do. He did break dancing, he spun the records and, and scratching and everything. And they were absolutely crazy. They were absolutely mad for it. People were jumping up and down. They were out of their seats. He ran around the auditorium dancing and stuff to our music. And they were like on cloud nine. This The, the entire place was out and out of their seats, reacting in a, a totally Western manner. Um, the people were kissing him and, and trying to dance like him. It was absolutely brilliant. We've got it all on film. And what happened was that, that people came into the dressing room and said, Trevor, the DJ, is going down brilliantly. We're going to have no trouble whatsoever. And there was about a 15-minute break before we came on. And what happened was that in that 15-minute break... There was an announcement, obviously in Chinese, so we didn't understand it at the time. There was an announcement um, made to the to the the audience that there was to be no dancing for the rest of the evening. There were people to remain in their seats. In other words, they'd been frightened by the reaction they saw just to the the opening act. So we went out and played to nothing. You know, we went out and played to to thirteen thousand people sitting down which was really horrendous because we had no idea of this announcement and all we knew was that we had, as far as we were concerned, we were not communicating. And uh, there was one funny thing actually is that when you actually ask, when you actually try to get the, the audience to clap, they have, no, they have no perception of clapping in rhythm. So you'd clap and they would just applaud you. <laughs> and uh, I got... I... Everyone was smiling but... but... But basically, we just felt we'd really, we really felt first. The first feeling was of failure, you know, that it was a that we there was no way we could communicate. And then there was a, when we actually found out what had gone on. I was just furious, you know. I'd gone through. Um, we'd already been in in uh, Peking for about five days. I'd gone through endless meetings, protocol meetings with, um, you know, cabinet ministers and various things that really are not in in. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a musician. I've no real desire to to um, to sit and, and uh, I mean, obviously, I felt responsibility at the time, but to to represent in my own my generation from the West in a good light and and pop music in a good light. I felt that you know we did have some we had a a, um, a responsibility to keep the doors open, as it were, for other acts. I genuinely thought that was what we were there to do. And after that, realizing that they had no real, they had no real um, intention of allowing people to to uh, to absorb what we were doing, I, I just felt really betrayed. And also, there were announcements on the radio, things like that, to go that those those people 
who went to see the Guayam concerts to go and enjoy it, but not they literally told them not to learn from it. I mean, basically they said it's an it's a, they were basically saying this is an isolated incident, and you're not going to see it again. So don't get any ideas. You know that's basically what they were saying. And I, from that from that point on, the trip for me was a bit of a nightmare because I felt really kind of like we were we were there and we were being used in an industrial sense. We were being used. Uh, as a gesture that was not a genuine gesture and um, I found it kind of nasty after that but I mean I wouldn't have missed it for anything you know I mean I wouldn't have missed the fact I mean when we talked to some of these Chinese people afterwards and they were so excited you know some of them were it, it was just strange to see people that that had not experienced um, anything like it you know even though it was a very you know, it was a very, uh, very ordinary by by Western standards. There was nothing special about it. it was no special effects. It deli- relied totally on the performance of the band and everything. It was just something that they were totally um, uh, stunned by. You know. Well, while there's uh, no mountains to climb in rock and roll, new new areas to discover, as you say, there's very few places. What is there that exists that you'd like to do? What is it? Uh... What would I like to do? I mean, I have no. In terms of achievement, I have no mountains to climb or anything. I simply want to become. Uh, I think I suppose I simply want to become. I want to be very happy with with what I've done. Uh, when my career is coming to a close, I mean I don't think it will come to a close for a long time. I think the um, I, I have always been able to see my own future, as in the next couple of years. Um, I knew I'd be here right now and I knew two years ago I mean I knew that two years ago and two years before that when we were just starting out I knew we weren't going to be just another English pop band and I knew that the basis of it was the songs I was writing um, I, I suppose what I really want is to be able to do what I want creatively succeed and succeed publicly and be able to progress without screwing the rest of my life up that's the way I see it really because I don't really I can't really relate to um, the pressures I mean I know the pressure that's going to come with the type of music that I'm going to release because I don't think my music has reached anything like its peak uh, I think I'm a lot younger than most people that are in my that have found themselves in my position therefore potentially um, my career will be longer and if you look at it this way, in 10 years' time, I'm only going to be 33 years old. 33 years old, um, there are few people that in, in, the, in, in the rock business at 33 years old that are considered washed out, you know, in terms of age. Yeah. It's, um, it's just that uh, the fact that I am seen in... that I am seen not just as an artist and the fact that I'm seen in a in a in a sexual way. I mean that I have that kind of um, springboard means that uh, with the kind of music that I think I still have left in me, in ten years' time, I think I could be a very very big star as opposed to just a star. Um, and although there is that half of me that wants it, there's a, there's another half of me that's very frightened of it as well because. Um, I don't think it has a good effect on people's lives, and that's what I—that's what I find. Uh, that's I suppose my main ambition is to balance the two things, you know, because I don't want to be—I don't, 
I don't want to be dragged into the kind of downsides of, of this business that are so easy to fall into, you know. That's the main thing that, that frightens me about living over here as well. Uh, I mean, I'm very excited about the future, but at the same time it worries me.